Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Every day we hear the language of medicine. It's all around us. Time with patients, bending the cost curve, managed care, health savings accounts, primary care. It's all about medicine as a commodity. And certainly there's an important aspect to this with resources that are both finite and sometimes limited. But medicine is also about flesh and blood human beings, about the connection to your doctor. And it's simply not the same as your car's connection to a mechanic. And arguably in that difference lies the true beating heart that can shape patient outcomes. This is a big part of the work being done by my guest, Dr. Ronald Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a professor of family medicine, psychiatry, and oncology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine. He directs the Mindful Practices Program, the Center for Communication and Disparities Research, as well as the Dean's Teaching Fellowship Program. His current research is supported by a $7 million grant from the NIH, and he is a two-time Fulbright Scholar. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Ronald Epstein here to talk about his new book, Attending, Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Dr. Epstein, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Great to have you here. Is this one of the debates that has gone on in medicine for so long, this, this view on the one hand of, of heroic romanticism of the work that doctors do versus medicine as a commodity? Um. I think there's more to that uh, than just those two polar opposites. Uh, I see medicine as fundamentally a human connection between a a healer and a suffering person. And then everything derives from that. So whether you're a surgeon or a psychiatrist or a family doctor or an oncologist, um, it really, um, that's the core mission of medicine. You need to understand the way in which people are suffering and the way in which you can help. And in that sense, has that core mission changed over the years, or has that been pretty much a, a true north for medicine? Well, I think, I think there have been various threats over the years to that mission. And this is not just a recent phenomenon. If you read Plato, he talks about um, uh, threats to the integrity of medicine 2,500 years ago. But now we have some particularly unique and, and worrisome ones. And you referred to them already, the fragmentation of medicine, the commercialization of medicine, and also treating medicine as an assembly line. The idea of treating medicine in assemble, as an assembly line, talk about when that became an accepted notion and how it evolved that way. Um, wow. It, um, it really is kind of a slow evolution in the, starting in the 1980s, uh, but I think it's rapidly accelerated in the past 10 years. Part of it is that... Um, there has been increased time pressure for doctors to see more patients in less time. There's been conflicting messages about procedures and tests and medications, especially expensive ones. On the one hand, hospitals and pharmaceutical companies benefit from using those things, but uh, patients and insurance companies are trying to limit the costs that, uh, that these things incur. And I think a lot of clinicians feel caught in the middle. They want to do the best thing for their patients, but also are vulnerable to these same forces. How much of this has to do with how doctors see themselves? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And that's something that I really 
want to explore in depth and have explored in depth in some of my writings and in the book. But it's, um, I think that if you see yourself as a professional and as a fellow human being trying to help another suffering human being, that's kind of one image of yourself. Another is that you're going to a job, you fit into a large corporate or institutional structure, and you're in a way a widget in a very large machine. That latter one, I think, is pretty toxic because it doesn't provide patients with the attentiveness and caring that they seek. And also, it's, it's bad for the souls of physicians. You know, it, it, it doesn't give you a sense of satisfaction at the end of the day. Do you think that that's true in, in all specialties? Do you think that it's more true among those doctors that are in a more general practice? Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think the motivations to go into different specialties are different. Mm -hmm. So I'm a family doctor, and I also do palliative care. So both of those are intensely interactive specialties. I, I've, I've been in the same practice for 32 years. I know my patients very well. I know their families. Uh, in a way, I feel like I'm, I'm a part of their lives. And, um, and so that interaction with patients is really central to the work that I do. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, for example, uh, an ophthalmologist and spend much of your day doing cataract operations, you know, one every 15 minutes, your relationship with patients is really quite different. And so, uh, um, uh, on the other hand, I think that a good surgeon, even though their amount of time with a patient might be limited, really has this important task of getting to know the person quickly so that they win their trust, win their confidence, and, um, and the patient will follow through with what they need to do after the surgery so they get better. To what extent have you found that that relationship, and even in the case of the ophthalmology surgeon, to what extent does that relationship impact patient outcome? Um, well, this is what I've been doing research on for the past uh, over 25 years, trying to establish how communication and doctor-patient relationships affect outcomes. The earliest study that I know of that was done about this was done in the 1960s, and there was an anesthesiologist who divided patients into two groups. One group received what then was usual care, and the other group, the anesthesiologist, took about five minutes to explain to the patient what to expect after surgery in terms of pain and, 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 uh, and function. And the group that got the five-minute explanation required less pain medications. They were discharged from the hospital a day sooner, and they re returned to normal function much more quickly. And so just that... Uh, just that little bit of knowledge made a huge difference. And since then, there have been many studies in different fields in medicine and physical therapy and, and you know, anything health-related that have repeatedly over and over again shown that just taking the time to involve patients in their care and to develop a human connection does make a difference. And what does that tell us then about the responsibilities and obligations of the patient in this system? Well, again, really interesting question because patients are really, really variable. I mean, some patients are highly educated. 
Um, they, you know, study the internet before they come see a doctor. They try to figure out what's going on. They learn about every medication that they're taking and are really activated, informed, and ask uh, often really excellent questions without being prompted at all. I would say that's the minority, um, even though that might be the ideal. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are who are extremely frightened and and find it difficult even to formulate a question, much less uh, present a co coherent history of what's gone on with them. They they need help even constructing their illness story so that it, we can make sense of it. So I think that um, to the degree that a patient can present their symptoms and concerns clearly in an organized way. It always helps in healthcare, but you have to recognize as a healthcare practitioner that not everyone can do that. Many of the skills that, that we've been talking about with respect to doctors and that you talk about in attending, particularly with respect to mindfulness, to what extent are those really learnable skills versus intuitive skills in certain doctors? Well, you know, it, it's. Um, I, I think that some people are born with gifts, um, and and clearly there are people who are just good communicators by virtue of their upbringing and uh, just and their personality, their temperament, and probably need less help. But I think that, by and large, most most of us need some training in order to communicate better, to know ourselves better, to know our patients better. And in terms of communication training, we know that that makes a difference because um, uh, you can see a growth in skills and, and competence after uh, well-constructed training courses. In terms of mindfulness and knowing oneself better, that was exactly the question that we asked when we did a study about 10 years ago. Uh, we took 40 primary care physicians, uh, had them do a year-long uh, series of workshops that not only built their ability to be mindful with themselves, but also to communicate mindfully with others. And at the end of the year, uh, we measured their level of mindfulness. I know it sounds a little odd, but there are scales that you can do that. They became more mindful, but also they practiced medicine differently. They were more attentive to their patients' concerns, less likely to cut patients off when they mentioned some uh, emotional concerns, uh, more interested in their patients as people. And in a study that some colleagues on the West Coast uh, did, in, uh, it seems that their patients also um, are more satisfied with the care that they receive. So, so, yes, I do think it's possible even for people who've been in, you know, who are, uh, who've been in clinical practice for many years, who are, um, you know, who have many habits in life, if you will. Um, I think it's really possible for people to learn new things and to become more mindful. Is there a problem inherent in the fact that the range of illnesses, the range of things that physicians treat is so broad, that there are those things that range from, you know, the mild earache or the sore throat, which, you know, doesn't always fall into the category of quote-unquote suffering that you were talking about before, to very serious and complex issues? You can never know 
uh, unless you ask a patient. So what for me might seem to be a really minor symptom for someone may be really worrisome and vice versa. So I've had patients come into the office saying that they had a little bit of chest pain. Well, in fact, they were having a heart attack. So, you know, some patients will minimize even symptoms that, that I would consider really quite concerning and vice versa. Some people will come in with uh, a sore throat or an earache or a hangnail and think for whatever reason that it might represent something more serious. So the first thing is you got to ask. Uh, the second thing is that uh, as a health professional, time is limited, and it's unfortunate that there never really is enough time. So you have to make decisions about how to, how to, how to parse your time, how to divide it, how to, how to use it most effectively. And even though I'm scheduled with patients every 15 or 20 minutes, some patients might just take five minutes and some might take 45. So just, uh, and I think it's an art figuring out how to do that. Uh, the, uh, the the important thing there is um, is at the beginning of every visit to set aside your own assumptions about why the patient might be there and ask and then spend some time listening because even even patients I've known really well um, I can't guess how distressed they are by a symptom or what's really concerning them that day unless I really ask and listen. What role is there for other people in the clinic, the physician's assistant, the nurse practitioner, the nurse? What role did they fill in this matrix that we're talking about? Well, I work with all of the above. I work actually in my clinical practice. We have uh, nurse practitioners, nurses, medical assistants, um, and licensed practical nurses. We also have psychotherapists, uh, sports medicine specialists, a pharmacist, and, and any of these people, any and all of these people, and for that matter, the secretarial staff. Uh, so, and any and all of these people are part of our healthcare team and really need to reflect the same values and, and processes and need to listen to what concerns patients and reinforce each other's efforts. So it's incredibly important. You, in primary care especially, you just can't do it alone. And the role of those people in, in really trying to better understand the patient and, and make it easier for the physician whose time is, is more pressured oftentimes. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I think that ultimately the patient should feel that everyone is communicating with one another. And it's a difficult ideal to achieve, especially when things are fast-paced. But when it does happen, patients really do notice. Talk a little bit about the changes that you've seen, if at all, in patients themselves over the past several years, as more and more attention has been focused on health care and particularly medicine as a commodity, as we were talking about earlier. Well, I think there is... There are several groups of patients that um, are a bit different than, let's say, 20 or 30 years ago. I think that a, a certain segment of the population are far more informed about medical things, largely because of the Internet. I think that patients, that some patients, again, this is not the majority, but there's a sector of patients who've become much more wary about their interactions with the healthcare system in general and really question the motives, you know, whether it's really for profit or for the good of the patient. And, you know, uh, uh, I think that's a healthy debate 
because there are conflicts of interest in medicine and there are situations in which the patients really do need to advocate for themselves. So, you know, we don't have a perfect healthcare system, far from it. So uh, I think there's some legitimacy to all of those. And then, uh, and then there are people who really do have belief systems that are quite different from that that's held from most physicians. For example, you know, the belief in miracles uh, or a belief in, um, uh, uh, in, uh, in treatments that are not considered standard Western medicine treatments. So I think there's, you know, it's not that, I don't, I don't see that patients in general have changed that much, but I think that there are segments of the patient population that have become different and, and in a way more diverse. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting, actually. Uh, I find it challenging. Has that led to greater burnout among physicians? You know, um, it really depends on what your expectations are uh, in your work. Uh, I, I see medicine as an inexact science and a work in progress. And even though we'd like to think that medicine has advanced to a point of certainty, uh, especially as a primary care physician, most of the time I'm working with probabilities, which means there's always some uncertainty. And so I feel comfortable uh, in a position of not knowing everything. And when patients challenge my, you know, information or my judgment, I, I take that as, as an invitation to learn more, uh, as to kind of pique my curiosity. But I think if you find physicians who uh, really depend on feeling that they have to be the authority on everything, then I think it, you know, encountering patients who are doubting or who don't follow through becomes more difficult. So I, I see it as a dance, you know, it, it's, it takes two to tango. And, right. and I think that uh, our expectations really need to be different now because we have patients who are more activated and more educated. To what extent is any of this dealt with in medical schools today? I think medical schools are doing a, certainly doing a better job than when I was a medical student in the 1980s. I think that um, students learn about the primacy of patients' rights to know and understand and be involved in decisions. Uh, that's the core part of all medical school curricula. Talking about mindfulness, most medical schools offer some opportunity for them, for medical students to at least elect uh, a, a course or workshops to help them be more mindful and self-aware. There's more training and communication skills. So I think medical schools are doing a better job. What happens after medical school is what concerns me because a lot of the, those opportunities disappear during residency and there isn't really a lot to sustain practitioners once they're out in practice. Uh, and i just give you an example of the last time someone really observed, observes and critiques a physician's communication skills usually is sometime in the fourth year of medical school or the beginning of residency. And, you know, let's say they're in practice for 30 or 40 years. No one's really watching them and critiquing and coaching them. And if you think about star athletes or musicians or people who uh, are in, uh, in some other professions, you know, it's, it's common to have coaches or people to give you feedback. But in medicine, that's not part of the culture. 
Have you seen a change in the kind of doctors that go into the profession today? I am incredibly impressed with uh, the medical students we have here in Rochester. I know I know them better than students. I do travel quite a bit and meet students around the country, but first of all, the life experiences that many of them have had before medical school, you know, going to the Peace Corps or uh, doing work with the homeless or, you know, they, a, a, lot of, a lot of medical school students have come to medicine with a greater knowledge of the world. Um, uh, in, in my, you know, there, there always were some of us, I, I was a latecomer to medical school. I started at age 25, but, um, but that was exceptional in the 1980s. And now it's much more common. And, and I think that's a good thing that you have people who are, who, are, who are more worldly. I think you'd be crazy to go to medical school just with, for the sole reason of making a good living. I mean, medicine's difficult. And there are many other ways to, um, to make money that are easier than, than being a doctor. Um, but I think there was a time probably in the 70s and 80s when, that, that when people actually did have that illusion, that, they, that, that there was much more of a financial motivation to go into medicine. I mean, clearly we're very financially privileged, but uh, I just don't see that as a driver uh, to the degree that it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So in that sense, I, I think we have probably a somewhat more... Um, savvy and maybe less um, uh, uh, a savvy group and probably having having more of the right motivations for doing this kind of work. Right. I mean, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, I mean, even the 50s, there was also a kind of status motivation in addition to the monetary Absolutely. motivation. Absolutely. I mean, physicians were, uh, were, I mean, there were all these jokes about physicians and gods and all of that. And, and you don't hear those jokes anymore, you know, and partially because I think we we're not standing on pedestals uh, anymore. I think that's a good thing, actually. So. What impact in, in that regard, what impact has media images of the medical profession had on the profession itself. Certainly there aren't a whole lot of professions that are the subject of as many movies or television shows or books as, as the medical right. profession. Well, you know, I mean, you, you, uh, I grew up seeing Dr. Kildare and then Marcus Welby and, you know, these, these kind of godlike figures who were always right and everyone trusted them. And, you know, it, it and, um, Frankly, I didn't have much interest in those shows, but but uh, I think that was the prevailing a prevailing public image of of doctors. And now you have sometimes the opposite extreme of you know I mean I guess this all started with Nash, which was kind of irrelevant, uh, irreverent, and then um, uh, and then you know House, you know a guy who has you know, really no social skills, uh, but who has this kind of savant uh, <laughs> qualities. And so I, but, you know, I, I, I don't see a lot of real portrayals of the inner struggles that physicians have day to day, even dealing with some routine issues. You know, I mean, what does it feel like when you're giving someone a diagnosis that you'd rather not? You know, when when someone is uh, is critically ill, you know, what's it like for you personally when you lose a patient? Uh, I don't see enough of that because that's the real drama of of being uh, of being a physician. It's this um, interacting with others uh, in such a way that they really it really 
it, it affects you personally and in some ways enriches you, uh, but also it's difficult. And these are difficult uh, um, you know, situations to deal with. You talk about a lot of your own personal experience in, in attending and a lot of the doctors that, that you've seen operate. How early on, when you see a young doctor, how early on do you have a pretty good sense of what kind of doctor they're going to be, particularly in terms of their interaction with patients, their their sense of mindfulness, as we've been talking about? Yeah, I have a good sense. I can, I, you know, I can quickly get a good sense of who the stars are now. Uh, that is, you know, someone who's really wise beyond his or her years. Um, I had a student who was working with me on the palliative care service. I mean, that's a it's a very difficult environment. Most of the patients have serious and critical issues uh, and are likely not to survive very long. Uh, and he just kind of walked into these situations totally unfazed and was able to look patients in the eye and ask them really the most important questions that needed to be asked. And I thought, you know, this is this 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 kid is amazing. And and it turned out he had spent three years in the Peace Corps in in Ukraine and um, and and learned a lot about life and uh, and was really wise beyond his years. That didn't mean that he did, still didn't need to learn more and and to become more mindful and to find ways of cultivating that and not burning out during residency. So so I can see where people are at. Um, initially, fairly easily, but figuring out what it what it what they need to grow further and what will sustain them during their careers that takes more time. I really need to get to know them better. And finally, are you seeing a direct impact between all the talk that goes on today about medicine as a commodity and about the business of medicine, all the things we touched on earlier? Are you seeing a relationship between how much people hear that and how they relate personally to their doctor today? Um. Boy, I you know in a way I live in a little bit of a bubble here in Rochester. We 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 have a healthcare system here that works better than in most places, um, and this is for lots of historical reasons. Even with all the changes in healthcare, there are very few uninsured people. Uh, there are very few exclusions from treatments, etc. So, uh, the healthcare system, for a number of reasons, does work better here. Um, so I I think that. Although people are concerned about a lot of those issues, I don't see them as major impediments uh, in the day-to-day work of, of doctors and patients for the most part. But there are notable exceptions and gaps in the system. Now, some of those gaps have always been there, you know, mental health care, for example. And some of them are new uh, in that, you know, every, every January 1st, when the insurance companies change their drug formularies, we involuntarily have to change the prescriptions we're providing patients. I mean, people have, are experiencing that all over the country. But I think it's still the exception. I think most patients still believe that their physician, despite the craziness of our healthcare system, have their, have their own interests at heart. Uh, have their have the patient's interest. I'm sorry, the patient's interest at heart, and are not really fundamentally working for the system 
in order to exploit patients. So I, I, I don't think that it's gotten that bad here yet. I do know in other parts of the country things things have been worse, and and we read about these in the newspaper mm-hmm. all the time, you know, where you know uh, people end up having operations they didn't even know they were getting and being charged hundreds of thousands of dollars that are not co- covered by their insurance, and you know those kinds of issues that are side effects of our commercially oriented healthcare system. Uh, but I, I think that still, fortunately, at least in the environment I'm working in, it hasn't quite gotten to that point. Dr. Ronald Epstein, his book is Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Doctor, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate this. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thank you.